LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. A few weeks ago, our curator Susan Cain did something really special for members of The Next Big Idea Club. She produced an audio e-course where she shared the key learnings from her new book, the New York Times number one bestseller, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. This book and my conversation with Susan on this podcast have been among the most moving for me in the last year. Bittersweet persuaded me that we can live richer lives if we embrace the full breadth of the human experience, including the sorrow and the hurt and the pain, and maybe even the petty annoyances. They're all keys on a piano, and the music is more beautiful if we appreciate the full range. As she puts it, I love this, whatever pain you can't get rid of, make it your creative offering. Bittersweet is a soaring, expansive book. This course is a little different. It's a practical guide to harnessing the power of the bittersweet mindset in your everyday life. As I said, until now, this has only been available to members of the Next Big Idea Club, but it's so wonderful, so wise and warm and so thought-provoking and useful that we decided we wanted to share it with as many people as possible. So today, we're offering the entire course for free as an episode of this podcast. We hope you enjoy it. And if you like this kind of content, we invite you to join our community by downloading the Next Big Idea app. There you'll find additional e-courses from brilliant writers and thinkers like Daniel Pink, Shankar Vedantam, Lisa Feldman Barrett, and Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, to name a few. Anyway, I'm so delighted that Susan is one of our curators here at the club. I'm so honored to be able to call her my friend, and I'm so pleased to be able to share her wonderful course with you. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Hi, everyone. My name is Susan Kane. I'm one of the curators at the Next Big Idea Club and the New York Times bestselling author of Quiet, a book about the surprising power of introversion. Today, I'm here to teach you about another underrated quality, the role of the bittersweet, even the melancholic, as explored in my new book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. This course is about that complex feeling, the bittersweet, which recognizes that light and dark, birth and death are forever paired. I want to shine a light on this underrated archetype and show how the power of bittersweetness can add value to our lives. You'll learn ways in which the bittersweet fuels creativity, connection, productivity, and even happiness. You'll come to understand the ways in which bittersweetness can be a tool for healing yourself as well as others. I'll outline the ways in which a healthy dose of melancholia can actually help you move through and past the depths of mourning. And I'll explain the history behind why bittersweet temperaments have been pushed to the wayside. Most importantly, you'll learn practices and mindsets for incorporating the bittersweet into your days that result in a more fulfilled, meaningful walk through life.
Number one, longing is the ultimate muse. It's hard to put into words what I experience when I listen to bittersweet music in a minor key. I guess technically it's sadness, but I think what I really feel when I listen is a great outpouring of love. It's as if the music makes my heart open up. It's a sensation of awe that's magnified by the expansion of my chest muscles. If you define transcendence as a moment when your self fades away and you feel connected to the all, then these bittersweet moments are the closest I've come to experiencing it. You'd think that the ability to tune into such profound states of being with the relative ease of just hitting play on a stereo would normalize or even encourage the presence of the poignant in our day-to-day lives. Yet, acknowledgement, acceptance, and harnessing of the bittersweet is so often hidden behind closed doors in American culture. Communion with sadness is considered an intimate pursuit to be embraced in isolation, if at all, not one that you publicly display or gather socially in the name of. I stared this cultural taboo in the face back when I was a 22-year-old law student. I was happily listening to Leonard Cohn, aka the poet laureate of pessimism, when some friends picked me up in my dorm room on the way to class. They were amused by the incongruity of mournful songs blasting from a dorm room stereo, and one even asked why I was listening to funeral tunes. We laughed and moved on with our days. End of story. But little did I know that I would carry that comment with me for the next 25 years as I puzzled over two questions that grew into this book. One, why did I find yearning music so strangely uplifting? And two, what was it in our culture that made this seem like such a fitting subject for a joke? Thousands of years ago, the Greek philosopher Aristotle suggested that the human body contains four humors or liquid substances, each corresponding to a different temperament. Melancholic, sad, sanguine, happy, choleric, aggressive, and phlegmatic, calm. The relative amounts of these liquids were thought to shape our characters. American culture has been organized around the sanguine and the choleric, which we associate with buoyancy and strength. This sanguine choleric outlook is forward-leaning and combat-ready, It prizes cheerful goal orientation in our personal lives and righteous outrage online. It says we should be tough, optimistic, and assertive. Meanwhile, the bittersweet melancholic mood is judged as backward-leaning, unproductive, and mired in longing. And yet, statistics seem to show that there is a magnetism to sorrowful melodies. Sad music is much more likely than happy to elicit what the neuroscientist Yak Pangsep called that, quote, shivery, goose flesh type of skin sensation, otherwise known as chills. People whose favorite songs are happy listen to them about 175 times on average. But those who favor bittersweet songs listen almost 800 times, according to a study by University of Michigan professors Fred Conrad and Jason Corey and they report a deeper connection to the music than those whose favorites made them happy. They also tell researchers that they associate sad songs with profound beauty, deep connection, transcendence, nostalgia, and common humanity, the so-called sublime emotions. Longing pulls us toward something. Be it the longing that fills us during a soul-shaking song, the longing for home, the longing for God, These all inspire, motivate, excite, 
awaken the never-ending pursuit of the transcendent, the divine, the sublime emotions which seem to take us both off this planet and closer to it at the same time. It wasn't until I was deep into writing this book that I started to understand, not only intellectually, but also viscerally, what the religious impulse is. The intense transformative reaction I had to minor key music was apprehension of the transcendent, transformation of the consciousness. It wasn't belief in God exactly, or at least not the specific God of the ancient books, but it was the spiritual instinct come alive. Music is an expression of that which we long for. Longing propels our search for the mysterious that. If you'd like to further develop your appreciation of the sublime, I recommend listening to a few bittersweet tunes. You can find my playlist of my favorites at susankane.net slash playlist. Two, transform pain into your creative offering. One of the greatest examples of creativity as a dynamic move from dark to light is the composition and debut of Beethoven's Ode to Joy. The famous choral finale to his Ninth Symphony, performed for the first time on May 7th, 1824 at a theater in Vienna. Let's listen to a few bars. For three decades, Beethoven had worked on setting Ode to Joy, Frederick Schiller's poem of freedom and brotherhood, to music. To him, this poem was the ultimate expression of love and unity. He felt he had to do it justice, composing some 200 versions before settling on the one he liked best. But those years had not been kind to him. He was on top of the world in 1795, but by 1801, he had suffered rocky romances, a turbulent guardianship of his nephew, and he lost his hearing. Beethoven was a disheveled mess on opening night. As a deaf conductor, he was there to show the orchestra how to play the music the way he heard it. So he flailed around, gesturing erratically, as though he wanted to play all the instruments at once. The performance ended, and Beethoven stood with his back to the audience, still beating time to music that played only in his own head. A young soloist gently turned him around to see the audience with tears streaming down their cheeks, handkerchiefs and hats raised. Ode to Joy was a famously exultant work, but the audience reacted the way it did because in Beethoven's rendition, the music was laced with sorrow, which anyone can hear echoing to this day in its soaring, triumphant notes. Beethoven transformed his suffering into a creative offering, and the musical byproduct of his pain has endured for centuries. A growing body of research suggests that creativity is associated with sorrow and longing. The economist Karl Jan Borwiecki published a study in which he used linguistic analytic software to study 1,400 letters written by Mozart, Liszt, and Beethoven. He traced when the letters referred to positive emotions or negative ones, and how these feelings related to the quantity and quality of the music they composed at the time. Borwiecki found that sadness, in particular, was predictive of the artist's creative output. Now, you can't simply say pain equals art. It's more like 
creativity has the power to turn pain into something useful, something better, something beautiful. Instead of pain marking an end, a loss, a death, the pain signals transformation from one ending to another beginning. Endings give way to beginnings just as much as beginnings give way to endings. Creativity gives us power over our pain during times of transition. Now, that may sound intimidating. We aren't all virtuosos or artistically inclined. Your creative offering doesn't have to mean producing art yourself. When the pandemic started, I fell into the habit of doom scrolling and marinating and online toxicity, especially first thing in the morning. So I decided to transform my addiction by following art accounts. And each morning, I shared a favorite work of art on my social media pages. It's become a cherished daily practice, meditative, restorative, and community building. So to amend our principle, whatever pain you can't get rid of, make it your creative offering or find someone who makes it for you. Someone whose contribution to the world contains the essence of that something which you've been trying to touch all your life, even though you could never pinpoint it. Number three, channeling loss rather than succumbing to it. The author and poet Maya Angelou lived a life filled with loss, having been deprived of dignity, self-love, and her voice at a very young age. But later in life, she connected with that voice and committed to it in new and powerful forms. She tells the story of her early years in her powerful memoir, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. How she was sent with her brother when they were very small to live with her grandmother in Arkansas, a sign pinned to their chests reading to whom it may concern. She described a debilitating self-consciousness at the mere age of five, in which she felt too big, awkward, and unworthy to recite an Easter poem in front of her church. At age eight, she was raped by her mother's boyfriend. She testified against him in court, after which he was kicked to death by an angry mob. She feared after that that by speaking to people, they might die too. So she spoke to no one except her brother for five long years. But Angelo's life began to transform when, at age 13, she was invited to the home of a woman named Bertha Flowers. Mrs. Flowers was gentle, graceful, and elegant, and she doted on Maya, giving her poetry and novels. These works of literary art ignited a long-absent awe within the young Maya, who finally began to speak again through her own creative expressions. Angelo told the truth about her sorrows, and her pain became a soothing balm for those who felt alone with their own similar stories. One such person was a young girl in Mississippi named Oprah Winfrey. She stumbled across Angelo's book at the age of 15, stunned to see herself in its pages. How could this author have the same life experiences, she said, the same feelings, longings, perceptions, as a poor black girl from Mississippi, as me? I understood why Maya Angelou remained silent for years. Why did Oprah see in Angelou's writing not only a mirror reflecting her own life, but also, in her own words, a revelation? When she read Angelou's memoir, she writes, she was in awe. The book became her talisman. When she had the chance to meet Angelou ten years later, it was providence. These aren't ordinary terms of enthusiasm. This is the language of transformation of a lost self returned in another form. 
As Angelo's story suggests, many people respond to loss by healing in others the wounds that they themselves have suffered. Angelo represents one of humanity's oldest archetypes, the wounded healer. Though this is a term coined in 1951 by psychologist Carl Jung, the wounded healer has persisted for centuries. It can be seen in Greek myth, shamanistic cultures, Judaism, Christianity, and beyond. This idea that the strongest of healers have powers derived from their own suffering. For those of you thinking, well, but without a deep well of pain to draw from, does that mean I'm less capable of handling tragedy or healing others? I want to point to a fundamental aspect of the human success story, the compassionate instinct. This instinct is wired in us so deeply that it appears to be connected to a fundamental part of the nervous system called the vagus nerve, which links the brainstem to the torso. Dacher Keltner, who runs the Berkeley Social Interaction Lab and the Greater Good Science Center, has discovered that in addition to helping govern the mechanics of being alive, like digestion, breathing, and sex, the vagus nerve makes us care when we see suffering. Keltner also found that people with especially strong vagus nerves, he calls them vagal superstars, are more likely to cooperate with others and to have strong friendships. If you do carry the boulder of trauma on your shoulders, you can embrace the following critical tactics designed by Dr. Stephen Hayes, founder of the therapeutic technique called acceptance and commitment therapy. Connect with what matters and take committed action. This will move us from bitter to sweet, from loss to love. Ask yourself, what are you separated from? What or whom have you lost? And where is your particular pain of separation pointing you? Another strategy is to heed Keltner's advice and strengthen your compassion by striving towards humility. Researchers find that attitudes of superiority prevent us from reacting to other people's sadness. Here's a small thing you can do in your everyday life. Keltner suggests that gestures of submission, such as bowing down, can actually activate the vagus nerve. If you've ever done a bow of reverence at the end of a yoga class or during Sunday Mass, then you have firsthand experience with this. Also, be sure to practice self-compassion. Only by being gentle with yourself can you learn to be gentle toward others. Number four, rethink what it means to be a so-called loser. When I was a college student, it seemed to me as if all my classmates led charmed lives. They walked around with a nonchalance and grace that felt as if they came from a completely different planet. They carried themselves like people who had arrived where they were supposed to be. It seemed that they'd been there all along. And yet, I often found myself wondering what lay behind their faultless facades. So many years later, I decided to find out. I couldn't go back in time, of course, but I could talk to today's students. And that is how I found myself one day sitting in a wood-paneled room in one of Princeton's famed eating clubs, surrounded by a small group of current students who one by one put words to everything I'd wondered about during my college years. They spoke of something that they called effortless perfection, which they defined as the pressure to appear like a winner without needing to try. That means getting straight A's without apparently having studied or being the party guest who can both shotgun a beer and engage in intellectual conversations at the same time. The ability to show that you're unique, but just enough so that you still fit in. You should be fun, but not look too silly. 
Effortless perfection is also about masking any signs of loss, melancholia, or failure. The term was actually coined at Duke University, and other schools have their own names for the same norm. It's no accident that this phrase, effortless perfection, originated at the nation's elite universities, where young winners attempt to hold their gains. Because the phenomenon is not so much about perfection as it is about victory. It's about being the kind of person who wins, about being a winner. This societal pressure can be traced back to the origins of the U.S., The original dominant culture reflected the principles of Calvinism, a religion in which heaven existed, but would welcome only a predestined few. The doctrine of predestination meant that there wasn't much you could do to escape your assignment of either heaven or hell. But what you could do was show, by virtue of your ceaseless labor, that you were destined for the good place. You could show that you were one of the winners. Eventually, Calvinism was eclipsed by the new national religion of business, in which your predestination was for earthly success or failure. As the tycoon replaced the high priest, the word loser began carrying an altered meaning. In the 16th century, it meant one who suffers loss. But by the 19th century, loser came to mean a, quote, hapless person, one who habitually fails to win. Loss became a condition to avoid— and not one that deserved compassion, but rather evoked a kind of contempt. Increasingly, failure, loss, and heartache were attributed to flaws of the soul. Today, the division of society into winners and losers is starker than ever. To bridge the gap, we need to find a way to lift the pressure of effortless perfection. We need to get to the point of seeing our sorrows and longings, not as indications of secret unworthiness, but as features of humanity. The psychologist and management thinker, Susan David, says that the key to achieving this is emotional agility, which she defines as a process of holding difficult emotions and thoughts loosely, facing them courageously and compassionately, and then moving past them to ignite change in your life. If we don't allow ourselves to experience all our emotions, including the difficult ones, then these feelings will undermine us at every turn. So what can you do? Well, try asking yourself, in which parts of my life am I wearing a mask of effortless perfection? Then consider what it would feel like to drop the guise, to stop being so ashamed of your imperfections. You may just find that sharing your vulnerabilities doesn't drive people away. It draws them toward you. Number five, overcome the tyranny of positivity in workplace culture. Effortless perfection and artificial cheer are not just hallmarks of higher education. In the workplace, too, employees are expected to be happy, confident, knowledgeable, and mechanically productive day in and day out. Susan David calls this the tyranny of positivity. It's a facade that every worker is aware of, but few dare to question. And why is that? Many employees are concerned that a public display of sorrow in the workplace would be seen as a warning sign that they're sluggish, unmotivated, or disengaged. This may be changing, though. Some studies have found that some of the best work cultures are the most supportive. They've also shown that leaders who are brave enough to buck the tyranny of positivity and bring bittersweetness to the workplace may actually be more successful in the long run. Organizational psychologists have long studied the various kinds of power that leaders wield. 
Some hold positional power, including the perception that they can and will bestow rewards and punish transgressors, while others tend to personal power, including the ability to inspire others and identify and sympathize with them. Despite the melancholic type being viewed as more timid and less assured, they're also seen as more sympathetic and likable. With this information in mind, Tanya Schwartzmuller, a researcher at the Technical University of Munich, hypothesized that the difference between angry and sad leaders is not the relative amount of power, but the type of power. She led a series of studies in which subjects were shown videos of actors delivering speeches as either an angry leader or a sad leader. The research indicated that angry leaders have more positional power, while sad leaders tend towards personal power. Compared to positional power, those with personal power inspired more loyalty in their hypothetical followers, who are less likely to want to sabotage them and more likely to feel accepted and valued. We're often taught to focus on our strengths, not weaknesses, but we shouldn't confuse a bittersweet temperament or a so-called negative emotional state, such as sadness, with weakness. In fact, some of our most self-aware leaders face their sorrows, limitations, and temperaments head-on and learn to integrate them into a fuller self. A great example of a work culture that transcended the tyranny of positivity is Midwest Billing, which is the billing unit of a community hospital in an impoverished part of Jackson, Michigan. In 2011, a group of scholars from the Compassion Lab published a study about Midwest billing, showing that this unit created a culture in which it was assumed that personal troubles were a normal part of every worker's life. Staff members cared for each other when they lost loved ones, filed for divorce, faced domestic abuse, or just had a bad cold. And sharing troubles turned out to be very good not only for mental health, but also for business. During the five years prior to the study, Midwest Billing got its bills collected more than twice as fast as before, beating industry standards. Turnover rate in the unit was only 2%, compared with an average of 25% across all of Midwest Health System, and a significantly higher rate across the medical billing industry. What can we learn here? Well, if you're in a leadership position, try taking a page from Midwest Billing's ledger. Develop a work culture where team members feel safe to acknowledge the complexity of their lives. And if you're not in a leadership position, try modeling compassion, honesty, and humility the next time you and your colleagues are standing around at work. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. 
Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Number six, don't move on, move forward. My brother, who was an abdominal radiologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, died of complications from COVID in April 2020. In the days that followed, I felt a pit of nausea, both literal and existential. What is this seasickness that comes when a person is suddenly gone? Its true source, I think, is the realization that what once was will never be again. And you can get used to the idea that everything passes. You can read the Stoic philosophers who teach us to accept death as inevitable. You can meditate on impermanence. I do these things regularly, and they prepare you to some degree. But the terrible beauty of transience is much greater than we are. In our best moments, especially in the presence of sublime music, art, and nature, we grasp the tragic majesty of it. The rest of the time, we simply have to live it. The question is, how? How are we supposed to live with such an unthinkable thing? If you've ever lost a loved one, then you've probably felt some of the same societal pressures I did in the wake of my brother's passing. The sense that the right thing to do is to keep a stiff upper lip, to grin and bear it and get on with your life. Because isn't that what the person you lost would have wanted? But here's the problem. No matter how much your culture tells you to smile, it simply isn't human to move on. Consider the work of George Bonanno, He's a professor of clinical psychology at Columbia who studies our natural capacity for resilience. And his research has shown that what we assume to be the standard trajectory of bereavement, a long period of agony followed by a painstakingly slow recovery, is not really standard at all. The reality, Bonanno says, is far more complex. In the immediate aftermath of loss, it's common to move back and forth between intense feelings of happiness and sorrow. Eventually, that oscillation slows, and the periods of sadness gradually get less intense. But this doesn't mean we ever move on completely. As Bonanno points out, even the most resilient among us, quote, may not resolve the loss. They may not fully put aside the pain, but they're able to continue functioning. In other words, we're built to live simultaneously in love and loss, in bitter and sweet. I want to share a story that helped me reframe my understanding of grief and find answers to the questions I posed at the beginning of this chapter. How are we supposed to live with the unthinkable? How can we possibly come to accept that what once was will never be again? This is the story of a woman named Nora McInerney. In 2014, when she was 31, Nora had a perfect-seeming life. A nice home, sweet toddler, happy marriage. But then. In the span of just six weeks, she miscarried her second child and lost her husband, Aaron, to brain cancer. In an effort to make sense of all that loss, Nora began asking other bereaved partners what advice about grief they hated most. The most common reply was the exhortation to move on. Here's Nora speaking at the TED Women Conference in 2018. Like, we don't look at the people around us experiencing life's joys and wonders and tell them to move on, do we? We don't, like, send a card that's like, congratulations on your beautiful baby. And then five years later, think, like, another birthday party? Get over it. Like, (laughs) 
yeah, we get it, he's five. (laughs) Wow. But grief is kind of one of those things like falling in love or having a baby or watching The Wire on HBO where you don't get it until you get it, until you do it. And once you do it, once it's your love or your baby, once it's your grief and your front row at the funeral, you get it. You understand what you're experiencing is not a moment in time. It's not a bone that will reset, but that you've been touched by something chronic, something incurable. It's not fatal, but sometimes grief feels like it could be. And if we can't prevent it in one another, what can we do? The answer, Nora realized, was not to move on, but to move forward. And that's what she did. She married a new man, and today they have four kids, a house in the suburbs, and a rescue dog. But just because she's moved forward doesn't mean she's left Aaron, her first husband, behind. He's present in her work, in the child they had together, in the person she's become. A model of resilience, Nora has learned to live simultaneously in love and loss, bitter and sweet. What can we do other than try to remind one another that some things can't be fixed and not all wounds are meant to heal? We need each other to remember, to help each other remember that grief is this multitasking emotion, that you can and will be sad and happy, you'll be grieving and able to love in the same year or week, the same breath. We need to remember that a grieving person is going to laugh again and smile again. If they're lucky, they'll even find love again. That yes, absolutely, they're going to move forward. But that doesn't mean that they've moved on. We've all faced loss in our lives. Sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's a place or a way of life. Take a moment and consider how what you've lost still endures in the present. How have you moved forward and how might you help others do the same? Number seven, the possibility of generational healing. Do we inherit the griefs and traumas of our ancestors? This question is being studied by Dr. Rachel Yehuda, a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience and the director of the Traumatic Stress Studies Division at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Yehuda works in the emerging field of epigenetics, the study of how genes turn on and off in response to environmental changes, including adversity. She has studied the tangible markers of trauma in the children of Holocaust survivors. For instance, survivors' children were three times more likely to suffer from PTSD if exposed to traumatic events. They were more vulnerable to clinical depression and anxiety, and their blood tests showed the same neuroendocrine and hormonal abnormalities as the survivors themselves. But Yehuda took this work a step further, and she found that a particular gene associated with stress showed a type of epigenetic change called methylation in both survivors and their offspring. This field is young, and the body of evidence is still growing, but the studies are mounting, showing evidence that we inherit parental trauma that occurred long before we were ever conceived. And epigenetic research also suggests that if pain endures transgenerationally, then so too could healing. One thing we can all do, 
even as we seek out and honor our parents' and ancestors' stories, is work to set ourselves and our children free from the pain. We can see that our forebear stories are our stories, but they're also not our stories. That we may have inherited an echo of our ancestors' torment, but the tears they shed ran down their cheeks and not ours, and not down our children's cheeks either. Transgenerational healing takes many forms, all of them involving the creation of healthy connections with our ancestors. One way to do this is to travel back in time. Consider the trauma of slavery as it manifests in its descendants. Literally, as I was researching this phenomenon of inherited grief, I received an email from my friend Jerry Bingham, the creator and host of Hush Loudly, a podcast dedicated to introverts. Jerry lives in Chicago, but she was writing from Senegal, where she had taken an unexpected business trip. While there, she had visited Gore Island, the last place our ancestors were held before being brought to America, wrote Jerry, who's African-American. The tour guide talked about how the Portuguese, Dutch, and British took over the island and used it as its last port to cross the Atlantic Ocean. They piled men and women in these rooms, only feeding them once a day to keep them alive. For those souls who died, their bodies were thrown in the ocean. Jerry's email included haunting photos. In one of them, she's standing in front of what was called the Door of No Return. Another showed two separate holding areas, one marked for women and another for children. Stomach-churning reminders of all those mothers separated from their children. But Jerry added something surprising in her email. It felt like sacred ground to me, she said. It felt sacred because I was standing on the same ground where maybe millions of slaves, my ancestors, were standing not that very long ago. And I felt their souls. I felt their spirits. When I walked in, I felt fear, anxiety, hurt, heartbreak, anger, terror, and the unknown. Those feelings weren't mine. They were theirs. And then Jerry goes on to say that as she stood there and processed what she believes were her ancestors' feelings, she also processed her own feelings, but this time they were feelings of joy, pride, strength, and empowerment. All I could think about, she wrote, was, look how far my people have come. I hate how their lives turned out, but I bet they're proud at what we've become. I feel even more responsible now to be the best person I can be and to not take anything I've been given for granted. I'm blessed to be born into the life that I have and to be given everything I needed and raised by parents who put me first and gave me the world. I left there thinking about my responsibility to my race and culture. It's mind-blowing to see where we came from, how we were treated, and how we've survived and thrived generations later. I'm grateful and humbled to be the manifestation of my ancestors' tragedy and grief. When was the last time you visited the graves of your relatives, or looked through an old photo album, or took your family heirlooms out of that box in the attic? If you want to better understand the bittersweet outlook, find ways to connect with your forebears. Ask yourself, what is my emotional lineage? What kind of emotional imprint do I want to leave on the generations to come? How can I turn the tides toward healing? Number eight, mortality's gift of meaning. Dr. William Breitbart is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. He works with dying cancer patients, not to cure them, not to extend their lives, 
not even to ease their physical pain. His mission is to give his patients a sense of meaning in the time they have left through a program he developed called Meaning-Centered Psychotherapy. When he started as a young psychiatrist, working first with AIDS patients and later with people in the advanced stages of cancer, Breitbart noticed something consistent across all the individuals he treated. They wanted to die. It didn't matter if they had three months left or six or 12, they wanted it over with now. Most clinicians at the time interpreted this outlook as a symptom of depression or physical pain. About 60% of patients improved after being treated for one or the other, but the remaining 40% still wanted to die. Dr. Breitbart thought the problem was that these people had lost their sense of meaning, and there was no medication for that. He had to find another way, so he set off to help patients find their whys. The protocol he and his postdoc fellow, Mindy Greenstein, cobbled together was based on the idea that we all have two existential obligations. The first is simply to survive, but the second is to create a life worth living. Breitbart believes the key to fulfillment is learning to love who you are, which is unconditional and unceasing, rather than what you've done. Another way of investigating this question is through the work of Laura Karstensen, an influential psychology professor who runs the Stanford Lifespan Development Lab and the Stanford Center on Longevity. When faced with our own impermanence, Karstensen has found, our surroundings become precious and we savor them. Moments become suffused with their imminent ending. She witnessed this perspective on life in a study about the emotional tendencies of different age groups. Karstensen found that older people reported less stress, anger, worry, and distress than the young and middle-aged. She called this the paradox of aging. Karstensen's hunch as to why was that as age increases, so does a sense of poignancy. The young delude themselves that the music will never stop playing. So for them, it makes sense to explore rather than savor, to meet new people rather than devote time to their dearest to learn new skills rather than pondering the meaning of it all. But when you know, when you really know that you won't live much longer, your perspective narrows and it deepens. You start to focus on what matters most. You stop caring so much about ambition, status, and getting ahead. You want the time you have left to be charged with love and meaning. You think about your legacy and you savor the simple act of being alive. We can all enter this state, hypothesizes Karstensen, but it happens more frequently for our elders. But even if you're 22 or you're not temperamentally bittersweet, Karstensen is convinced that there are other ways to access the wisdom of the aged. She advises, surprise, listening to minor key music and meditating on death and noticing impermanence in nature and spending time with older people and recording their life stories or any manner of activity that reminds us of mortality. All of these practices are meant to help us treat our lives and each other as the precious gifts they are. Conclusion. Follow your longing where it's telling you to go. What are you longing for? You may not have asked yourself this question before. You may not have identified the important symbols in your life story. You may not have examined what they mean. You've likely asked other questions, such as, what are your career goals, or do you want marriage and children? But have you asked yourself these questions in the deepest terms? Have you asked, what is the thing you long for most, your unique imprint, singular mission, 
wordless calling? Have you asked where on earth is your closest approximation of home? And if you have a bittersweet temperament, have you realized that you are part of a long and storied tradition that can help you transform your pain into beauty, your longing into belonging? In this quest to fulfill our longings, we need to learn the impossibility of utopias. We should cherish what we have and actively bring the bittersweet tradition to our respective domains, to the corners of the world over which we have some small influence. For all of us, no matter what our domain, there's also the simple exhortation to turn in the direction of beauty. You don't have to follow any particular faith or wisdom tradition to realize that the sacred and miraculous are everywhere. It took me decades to understand the 19th century dictum that beauty is truth, truth beauty. Eventually, though, I realized it meant beauty as a state we can access for brief and transformative visits through various portals, whether it's through the Mona Lisa smile or the voice of Leonard Cohn. The beautiful, the sublime, that which inspires awe and chills and goosebumps, we're drawn to those not only because these forces of the bittersweet heal, but also because they're manifestations of love or divinity or whatever you want to call it. We should protect it and cultivate it and honor the bittersweet contours of life with the practices suggested here and the ones of your own design. Thank you so much for coming along on this journey with me. Thank you, Susan. That was Susan Cain's audio e-course for her book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. We'd love to hear what you think of it. We at the Next Big Idea Club are developing special audio content that combines the best elements of podcasts and audiobooks. We're focused on delivering ideas in shorter formats directly from the leading thinkers in the world so you can learn quickly and discover ideas that might just change the way you see the world. In our app, we feature a new book every single day, seven days a week, distilled by the authors into five key insights we call Book Bites. If you love them and you want to go deeper, we link directly to the book so you can read the whole thing. Intrigued? Go to your app store and search for the Next Big Idea app. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kovnat. Our associate producer is... Anya Szczeszniewski. Mixing by Jason Freeman. Next week, journalist Will Storr tells us that life is a game, a game of status, and it's impossible to win. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you then.